Hi, welcome back to the Hempson's Health and Social Care Law Podcast. My name's Graham Trigg, I head up the Hempson's Client Services team. Today I have with me Helen Claridge. Helen, Helen is a partner in the Manchester office. Um, she is an expert in medical law and we are going to be talking today about resource allocation, particularly in the context of critical care. Hi Helen, how are you today? I'm really well, thanks Graham. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Today we're going to talk about COVID-19 and critical care. Um, Obviously, uh, at the start of the um, coronavirus outbreak, there were uh, many, many very sensational headlines regarding lack of ITU beds, ventilators and such like. We seem to be seeing the the curve flattening right now, but um, clearly there are going to be many, many resource allocation dilemmas uh, still to come down the line. Um, Presumably, clinicians are going to be able to need to rely on some some central guidance aren't there or something yes absolutely and i think you know certain bodies certainly professional associations have been extremely responsive in trying to get things out um, in order to provide some guidance to those clinicians on the ground um, very early on we saw we saw something from nice um, the bma the rcp have also put out um, ethical frameworks um, and i think um, you know there there is a difficulty here because the situation is changing so quickly um but but equally um the professional bodies certainly have been have been have been quite responsive in getting things out and and, and amending their guidance protocols to 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 ensure it can be it can be quite rapid so so certainly um we've seen we've seen quite a lot of guidance out there coming out on a regular basis okay so you mentioned NICE, BMA, RCP. I mean, probably it'd be worthwhile just taking each one of those in turn. So um, let, let, let's start with, with, with NICE, shall we? What, what, what have they had to say? Well, as I say, NICE, NICE were, were, were quite quick and they produced some of the, the first corona um, specific uh, resources specifically in relation to, to critical care and they came out with a with a critical care in adults rapid guideline as I said it went under a condensed process um, and that guideline had had something of, a, of an interesting history actually which I will touch on briefly because I think not only is it interesting to see what guidance is, is out there but how it's how it's evolved through the through the pandemic so I, w- I will spend a bit of time talking about that um, as I say it first came out on the on the 20th of March. Um, and that guidance came with an algorithm based on an assessment under the, the clinici- clinical frailty scale intended to sort of triage um, referrals and admissions to, to critical care. I'm sure the majority of our listeners will know um, about the clinical frailty scale, but, but for those who don't, um, it's a scale from one to nine, one denoting someone who's very fit, energetic, and nine referring to a person who, who, who is terminally and, and approaching the end of life. Now, the difficulty with this scale is, is it doesn't identify the source of, 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 of any frailty. So taking a number in the middle, for instance, six, denotes something somebody who is moderately frail and the definition of that is that that person needs help with all outside activities and with keeping house and the difficulty is as I say that is that is from whatever cause so the the algorithm which was based solely on, on that scale was updated on the 25th of March, i.e. fairly shortly after it was first provided following um, highlighting of concern from um, 
people with stable long-term disabilities um, on the basis that they were being unfairly discriminated by the by the use only of this scale um, and 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 that the, the 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 reformed algorithm which came out I'll, I'll you know starts with starts with an entry level um, which says a patient over 65 without stable long-term disabilities for example cerebral palsy learning disabilities or automism in that circumstance the clinician should use the clinical frailty score as part of a holistic assessment so it's put more in context any patient under age 65 or patient of any age with stable long-term disabilities learning disabilities or autism there should be an individualized um, assessment of that person um, following that entry assessment under the algorithm, somebody will either be um, more frail, in which case um, initial management is outside of critical care, but it's not a bar to critical care. Critical care um, will be still available to that person if it is considered clinically appropriate following consultation. Um, if somebody is less frail um, and they want critical care treatment, then again, the, the options are, are going to the ward or critical care, depending on the assessment of that individual and their and their condition now the guidance that goes with this algorithm there is there is also supplementary guidance and that encourages clinicians um, to carry out um, early and robust care planning and early involvement of critical care teams in discussions about admission to critical care um, sensitive discussions are encouraged with patients of increased frailty of a possible DNA CPR um, decision um, when critical care is commenced, there should be clear treatment plans and goals um, with the um, consequence that, that treatment um, should be stopped when it is no longer considered able to achieve those goals. Um, that the guidance encourages clinicians to admit critical care based on likelihood of recovery, taking into account the likelihood that a person will recover to an outcome that is acceptable to them. And it's those last few words that are key there. This is very patient specific. It's not, um, you know, an, a, 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 an objective or a or a reasonable man um, assessment. It is it is patient specific. Um, you know, as ever, the guidance encourages that that that, that documentation documentation is key. I mean, I think what what I take from this guidance is that it it doesn't say here's what you do when you're faced with with the impossible choice between two patients who might benefit from from treatment. It doesn't go that far. As I say, it was one of the first pieces of guidance out there. It is very much a theme of um, make the most of the resources you have and plan more carefully um, than than you might have done perhaps before because. Because you won't be as responsive in the short term when resources are, are, are overwhelmed by need, as it is expected that they that, 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 that they will be. So I think that's what that's what Nice got out there. They're nice and early, and I do think that it's that it's helpful, and I do think shows you know, how responsive these bodies can be, not only to getting guidance out there, but also to amending it when it's not quite fit for purpose. Yeah, sure. Okay, that, I mean that's clearly incredibly helpful. Uh, I should just point out that we're um, again social distancing. We're opposite ends of the country. We're recording this podcast over Skype, and I think there are a couple of slight dropouts. But we're going to carry on because what, clearly what, what, what you have to to say here today is incredibly important stuff. Um, so apologies if we do just drop it occasionally. We, we'll obviously do what we can on the edit. Um, that's nice. You also mentioned BMA, uh, and they're clearly going to have a slightly different set of priorities. So, so how have they approached their their, their guidance? 
Well, their, their guidance is, is, is raised as, as, as a guidance note about the ethical issues, which I think, I mean, everybody can agree is, is, is extremely um, helpful and a very important perspective to take on, on what's what's going on. And their approach, um, published 1st of April, um, so, so slightly after the, the NICE um, guidance, and their approach does deal specifically with decision-making where serious health needs have overtaken the resources required to treat them. Um, and, a, and a sort of shift to the approach, you know, again, away from the first come first served approach and a, and a need to provide the greatest medical benefit to the greatest number of people so it is a noticeable um it is a noticeable um, addition you know it goes it does go further um the, the, the bma um and it and it stresses um the um overall ethical framework which you know a lot of it's borrowed from the from the um, 2009 pandemic guidance that came out during that time i.e you know a stress towards respect fairness reciprocity flexibility transparency those pervasive ethical issues you know should be should be applied uh, during this time and specifically in relation to resource allocation the bma stresses that decisions must be reasonable in the circumstances based on the best available clinical data and opinion based on coherent ethical principles and reasoning agreed on advance in advance where practical practicable whilst recognizing that decisions may need to be rapidly reviewed in changing circumstances consistent between different professionals as far as possible communicated openly and transparently and subject to modification modification review as um, the situation develops I think probably the section of this of this guidance document that has received the most attention is is the section that does deal specifically with withdrawing treatment from one person to give to another person because that second person may benefit from it from it um, more and and I'll I'll quote this guidance here because I do think it's important to to get it exactly right. Um, it says that health professionals may be obliged to withdraw free treatment from some patients to enable treatment of other patients with a higher survival probability. This may involve withdrawing treatment from an individual who is stable or even improving, but whose objective assessment indicates a worse prognosis than another patient who requires the same resource. The guidance then says, if there is a radically reduced capacity to meet all serious health needs, it is both lawful and ethical for a doctor following appropriate prioritization policies to refuse someone potentially life-saving treatment where someone else has a higher priority the available treatment. The guidance then goes on to stress that um, that, that these decisions are not are not best interest decisions. It's we're not dealing with, um, you know, it's it, it's not. There's no automatically pro, automatic priority for those who don't have capacity, and it would be unethical to prioritise someone on the basis that they have a clinical decision maker or or perhaps their their religious views. So I think you know the BMI guidance certainly certainly goes a step further than nice and and some of the other guidance out there and dealing dealing specifically with that nitty-gritty issue that uh, that uh, that is is a very real possibility in these times yeah and those you know those full-on are, are those, those decisions that that clinicians just really do not ever want to have to make i think i think that's right i mean you know um clinicians make extremely difficult decisions and you know it, it would be it would be foolish to assume that they don't carry out some aspect of prioritization um in in every day in you know in their everyday um working environment um 
you know ICUs are 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 a tremendous resource, but you know there is no doubt that that certainly. Um, prioritization does take place however you know what we're talking about in this pandemic is is that situation magnified you know a hundred a thousand fold and you know we are in a in a in sort of legally uncharted territory when you are faced with two patients who might well benefit from treatment um but but it, it it's a real possibility that only one of them can have it yeah absolutely yeah um, uh, yeah on on, on unspeakable dilemmas really. You mentioned RCP as well, Royal College of Physicians. Um, let, let's move on to their guidance. I should point out that we, we, we will put all the these guidance notes uh, where, where we have links, we'll put them into the show notes on this podcast so that you can access, that people listening can access the, the guidelines. So yes, it, yeah. RCP brought out their guidance 7th of April. Again, it's a, it's it's consideration of the eth- ethical dimensions, you know, giving people a framework in which to make these decisions. Um, and, you know, again, they're stressing the, the ethical principles, accountability, inclusivity, transparency, reasonableness, responsiveness, um, and, and stressing that decisions should be fair, reciprocal, uh, respectful, and equitable. Um, you know, one of their key points is that decision-making should not be disease-specific. I think we're, you know, we could be guilty of of just giving of giving COVID nineteen you know special special treatment in relation to this because that's the pandemic in which we're 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 currently acting. But you know, actually, what we're talking about here is is um, resource allocation across the board, and no matter the the source of illness. Um, and, and and again, you know, treatment should be provided irrespective of the patient's background, where it will help the, help the patient survive and not harm their long-term well-being. Um, the RCP stressed that the usual good care principles continue to imply include consideration of the patient and their wishes as much as is feasible, and, and you know, if if appropriate, their carers. So you know, the RCP. I would say doesn't you know doesn't go as far as the BMA. Um, it doesn't deal explicitly with a situation in which patient A and patient B would likely benefit from the critical from critical care, but there is only enough resource for one. Uh, the RCP doesn't make any any reference to 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 the law or the legal basis for that. Um, and 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 where it does. Um, where it does refer to prioritisation, it refers back to the NICE guideline and the algorithm we, we started discussing at the end of this. So it is, I mean, I think it's fascinating to see the different approaches that have been taken by the by the professional bodies to this. Um, and the, you know, I mean, all of them have the have the have the goal of of stressing the ethical framework here and the principles that must be held to apply in making these difficult decisions. But there are varying levels of of um, you know how much guidance is given in making those those actual um, difficult decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I mean, the, the other body that that springs to mind for me then is MDU. I mean, have they have they chimed in on on this stuff? Or? They have done. Yes, they're um, they're um, they're they have they've released a statement of what their advice to their members has been, um, and they've been they've been very clear um, in saying that if a clinician is faced with the scenario where they are 
um, contemplating withdrawing treatment from one person to give to another when both of those patients could could um, in theory benefit from the from the treatment then that's in their view um, is a is a decision for the court and clinicians should be urging their, urging their employing or commissioning bodies to to make that application um, before the de- before the decision is made so they've been very clear that um, in their assessment um, clinicians don't um, have that power in their gift already and um, it should be it should be a matter for, for a judge yeah okay right so that deals with the sort of the covid specific guidelines um from the various different colleges and regulators and such like but inevitably there's also a backdrop of a huge body of pre-existing statute and case law governing clinical resource allocation uh how does how does all that that begin to fit in then well, I mean, as I think we've we've very briefly touched on already, it's 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 you know the law behind this is is not black and white. Um, you know, we're faced with a situation where some of the guidance says, you know, it's already lawful um, in certain circumstances for a clinician to make this decision, and then we have the MDU saying, um, you know, uh, we think this needs to be put before a court. So, as I said at, at the start, you know, we are in legally uncharted territory here. Um, you know, put put very simply, resource have never been an issue in any court decision about withdrawal of care from a patient. So, you know, from a legal perspective, we're working under a, under a number of a number of frameworks here. So, I mean, that's a little bit of a discussion about how difficult it is. So, so bringing it back to the, to, to what we what we know to be true, um, you know, first of all. Let's let's talk about our old reliables. You know the 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 legal provisions which we we you know have been in place for a long time and and, and are not changed by this. And that's and those are the provisions you know that, that say that neither a patient nor a family member can dictate what treatment is provided. The law does not require doctors to provide treatment or procedures that they have assessed as not being clinically appropriate or not of overall benefit to the patient. That those remain the same, and you know clinicians can can stand by those um, as they have done for 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 many years. Um, and I think you know when you think about the withdrawal cases, um, the, the legal framework were were under there, and the, the court structure under there is the Mental Capacity Act and, and the Court of Protection case law. Certainly, those are the the cases that you know you, you draw a lot of. Um, um, comparisons with if we're talking about withdrawal of life sustaining treatment then the court of protection has a whole body of case law dealing with that exact issue but the difference is that that's all done under best interests you know if we're talking about somebody in a, in a critical care unit somebody um, on a ventilator the, the, the strong likelihood is that they're not in a position to make decisions for themselves they haven't um, you know they they, 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 they you know we're, we're under the MCA and, and, and a decision or an act done on behalf of that person must be made in their best interests either by um, an appointed um, advocate if, if that's been properly done or, or, or by a clinical decision maker um, and you know, just just staying with the with the court of protection body of case law for for a moment. You know, we, we as I say, we have that we have that history, and the provisions that come from that case law are things like you know, best interests have to be assessed from a particular patient's point of view. A treatment is not futile if it provides an outcome which that patient would find acceptable. Uh, we're talking about Aintree here, which which also says you know, the legal question is not whether it's lawful to withdraw treatment, but whether it's lawful as being in a person's best interest to continue to give it. You know, and, and 
and what's highlighted by all this case law is a very much a question of the individual um, and, and their best interests, quite rightly so, you know, um, and, and that, that I think goes more to the point that we are, you know, we are in legally uncharted territory here. Um, you know, the Court of Protection has dealt with resources before. I'm talking about the, the MN case. Um, but that was that was a placement issue, and the the court of protection was asked to decide between the available options, um, the family of 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 the individual at the centre of this. Um, their position was that um, they thought the CCG should be ordered to offer whatever the court concluded was in an individual's best interest. And the CCG's position was, we simply don't have the resources to do that. We will put on the table what our resources allow us to, mm -hmm. and the court can only make a decision from those options that we have placed on the table. Admittedly, the court can probe into those options and see if you know they are reasonable and enough work's been done, but, but they can't do anything um, over and above what... MN would be able to do if he had the capacity to make the decisions himself. So I'm not saying that the Court of Protection hasn't dealt with resources before. It certainly has, but in a much in a much different um, and a much different context. And if we you know we talk the available options we're talking about there are available placement options, not you know whether a ventilator is is free to be um, to be allocated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, as I say, I think. The Court of Protection and the MCA and the MCA um, case law, you know, it's it's very tempting to go there to look for answers to this question, but actually, that is so focused on the individual um, that when you're in this situation we're talking about now, when it's essentially deciding between two individuals, um, you know, it's you know we're looking we're, we're going to be looking outside that for any remedy um, that, that 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 we need in our current situation. So looking now outside that body of case law, you know, I um I think that one that one case that is helpful to think about in relation to this scenario is the conjoined twins um case, Rie from early two thousands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um I mean just to just to give a bit of background on that on that case, that was the decision about whether to separate um two girls who had been born, as I say, as conjoined twins. Um one of whom had severe brain damage and, and the other was developing normally, um, but her heart was working for the pair of them. So to, 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 to part them would certainly end in the death of, of one little girl. Um, but the concern was that keeping them unseparated meant that, 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 that both girls might, might die. Um, so as you can see, you know, that's, that is a case where it is the consideration of two lives, which requires a balancing exercise to determine the least detrimental cause of action. Yeah. The conclusion of that case was um, in favour of one, but it did mean the inevitable death of another. And the judges decided in that case that, 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 that the clinicians were protected from, from any um, allegations of murder by way of the doctrine of necessity. Um, the provisions which went to that were that the, the act was required to avoid inevitable and irreparable evil. No more would be done than was reasonably necessary for the purpose to be achieved. And the evil inflicted was not disproportionate to the evil avoided. So I think that case, you know, we, I can see scenarios in which that case would go to the current um the, the current situation we're facing in relation to that allocation of resources to and the decision the balancing exercise which would need to to take place that there are clear parallels but i think also that case was very clear that it, it needed to go to court it didn't get the clinicians didn't have that power um 
by themselves. So a court application was necessary. Mm, a very stark choice there, clearly. Um, you know, but as you say, it, it sets out the dilemma, doesn't it? It, it, it clearly is going to be a, a case that people are going to have to look at. Absolutely, and so, and you know, I think when when you when you think about that case, um, you know, you do wonder where, um, you know, the the, the 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 legal basis for saying that clinicians already um, are empowered to 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 make these 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 really tough life and death decisions, and you know, harking back to the, the BMA guidance, you know, the, the case law which they cite as justification for, for as a support for for their position is very is is, is the public law. Yeah, the public law cases. So I think I'm, you know, I think it would be helpful to just go into those um, just mm. just briefly, because as I say, that is the basis on which the BMA um, have their stands, um, and it is a strong legal basis. Um, uh, but the, the case law is, is 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 very different from that we've been discussing so far. Um, the the BA case, um, which they refer to, um, the 2018 case. Now that was that was a um, an organ allocation case. It was the case was brought by a man who had entered the UK illegally. Um, and stayed in the country illegally is receiving regular diagnosis and would require a transplant. But because of his resident status, um, he was put in in group two for, for allocation of resources, which meant, I mean, in, in, in practical terms, it meant that he, he had little prospect of actually getting um, an organ in, in time to make a difference. Um, and he made this application um, for confirmation that the that the the directions that that set out this priority framework, which which put him in group two, um, were unlawful. Now the judge in that case, um, the judges did, did, didn't agree. Um, they 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 said that under the NHS Act um, 2006, the Secretary of State had a duty to provide a comprehensive health service, uh, which is designed to secure improvement in in the physical and mental health of the people of England. But that this was a time unlimited aspirational target, and the Secretary of State is entitled to exercise judgment as to what was necessary to meet the reasonable requirements, and at any uh, at any particular moment, um, and and prioritisation might be a necessary part of that. Um, so, so, so the Secretary of State was was lawful in setting these directions out because it simply wasn't possible um, for, for to to to, to um, provide everybody with the resource they need. In this case. Um, a, a, an available organ and, and, and therefore there had to be a framework under which to make the difficult decisions as to as to who would get it um, so that's one case um, the other case which is, is referred to by the BMA is, is the is the Cochrane case um, and and that's um, again as a public law case um, going into that in, in in just just very briefly um, that was about a, a lady with severe disabilities who was placed in a long in, in, in a long term NHS facility and was told by the health authority that she could live out her days there um, but subsequently the decision was made to, to close the facility because of but because of running costs now the case itself was about how much the lady was entitled to rely on that um, assurance that she could stay there and and what that entire her to um, 
but the um the the, the, but the way in which this help, this case is relevant to what we're talking about today is that it reinforced that scarcity of resources is a major consideration for the for the secretary of state and for health bodies and has to be in a consideration in any assessment of what is necessary at any point to provide a comprehensive health service so what we're dealing with today in order to provide a comprehensive health service at this moment in time uh, during this pandemic resources will have to to feature into that and therefore it is it is um, allowable it is permissible it is lawful um, to, to prioritize those resources and, and these cases set out that that you know functions of the, of the of the secretary of state in relation to that provision of health are delegated to health bodies you know they do go further down the chain um, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, the same principles by which CCGs have the power to decide who gets IVF, for instance. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's not the Secretary of State alone who can who can exercise this um, prioritisation um, uh, aspect. You know, that that is delegated down. Um, but it is it is it is very clear, I think, that. Um, you know, we have a, a, a multitude of, of legal frameworks feeding in to this very complex and, as I say, legally uncharted um, uh, um, situation. You know, we have the COP cases feeding in, which are the closest in terms of facts, but they're all about the individual. The Court of Protection can only make a, a, a decision about the best interests of a person and not competing interests about resources. We have the conjoined twins case, which sets out the basis and considerations, but the, it's clear that a court is necessary. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have these public law decisions, which I've yeah. just been talking about. And it's helpful to know that prioritisation can take place and is by no means a duty to meet every health need, but but I think what we do need to take from those cases is that there that needs to be a very clear policy in place. The courts are extremely keen to highlight that any prioritisation decision has to be centred on something. And it's not an individual clinician making a prioritisation decision, um, you know, case by case. Um, I mean, the BA case was about directions. I mean, as the status of, of legislation, um, that's over and above a, over and above a local policy. So, you know, I think... That 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 and I, I and the BMA are very careful to stress that point. You know, mm-hmm. a, a decision to prioritise resources will only be lawful if it is based around an, an appropriate um, policy, and that policy must be in line with all of the ethical um, principles we've we've discussed already. So, mm-hmm. so as I say, you know, a lot of law goes into this, and I think mm-hmm. what what comes out at the end of it is that. Um, uh, whether or not clinicians have the power to make those decisions, you know, must be it, it, the, the policy at the centre of them must be it must be a crucial part of that. So, what comes next then? We, we've got all, all these different overlays with the public law, the case law, the guidelines from policymakers and regulators. Uh, um, what comes next? Can, can we expect one overriding set of guidelines or more case law? Um, I mean, I think. You know, when you when you read when you read the guidance that's already out there, you know it is very careful to stress that uh, decisions should be made, action should be taken in line with national policies. Everything must be read in line with government guidance, um, and that you know, I, you know, it, it's possible that that could be read as as passing the buck. You know, think of these ethical considerations, but you know, primarily keep yourself up to date and and do what do what you're told. But actually. 
you know, I think it could also be read as as a call to action. Um, and there are those out there who are saying that there should be um, a, a clear national framework issued. Um, in fact, only only last week, um, a challenge was 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 launched um, as to the lack of a of a national framework uh, for treatment prioritisation. Um, if we do get to that situation where damage, um, demand outstrips supply. Um, that I think there were there were two challenges that were made actually one by a man who has an underlying who has underlying physical health conditions and, and suspects that if he were to be admitted to hospital he wouldn't be prioritised for for critical care and and wants to know that that will be the case so he can plan accordingly. The other challenge is, is by a group of campaigners um, for rights of of people with disabilities. Um, I think that their ages range from approximately 17 to, to 42. And again, their, their, their concerns are that, you know, if they do contract um, COVID and they, they do end up in hospital, they're, 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 they're concerned that they're not going to be prioritised. And, you know, I think, you know, want to know the basis for the decisions that are going to be made as to the allocation of those resources so that they can take measures, um, you know, Perhaps advanced care, care planning measures, or you know, so, 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 you know, just just so they they, they can know. Um, now, I think that the um, the the letters went out to the Secretary of State um, uh, and NHS England, and a response was due last week. I haven't seen anything yet as to as to um, what response has been provided, um, but um, I suspect that that a response will be. Um, will be forthcoming very soon. So it is entirely possible that a, a national framework might be um, might be produced, which will tie all of this together and provide clear guidance. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think that that framework is an easy thing to produce. You know, we've been through a number of the issues already today. And, you know, it is clear that, that, that they are extremely difficult decisions. And, and you know, there are things that, that cannot um, you know, there can't be blanket exclusions, um, and it, you know it will be very difficult to say to, to to distinguish. You know what is what are what are criteria that can be used to dis, to, to to set out one from another. So it's 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 not easy. Are we likely to get a clear national framework? Uh, you know, I would say I would say maybe there are certainly calls, and uh, we need to see how how those are responded to. Are we likely to get any case law? Again, you know, I think the the MDU um, edict makes that more likely. Um, I think clinicians, on the advice of their defence bodies, you know, will be pushing trusts to make applications if they feel that they're, they've been put in um, the position that the MDU um, sets out. So, so case law again is 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 certainly. Um, potentially there you know we've we've already had one case um which um touched on the resources issue um the judgment came out 9th of april um it was actually, it was actually um a hempson's case um it wasn't what we're talking about today it wasn't about you know resource allocation between one patient or another it it, it was it was um a bit a bit broader than that and it was a discussion um mb presumably Yes, yes, that's um, that's right. Thanks, Graham. It's the it's the um, UCLH and, and MB case. Um, Mr. Justice Chamberlain um, provided the the judgment, um, and you know that 
that case, as I said, it was it was um, essentially a, a bed blocking and eviction claim. But um, the judge was was very sympathetic to um, the pressure that the NHS is under into the current circumstances, the need for speed and the adaptations to ensure that clinicians can be heard on the ward. And you know, he did touch on the issue of, of resources, and um, in his judgment, he said that um, a hospital which determines rationally and in accordance with a lawful policy, so coming back to that policy again, um, that A's clinical need is greater than B's or that A would derive greater clinical benefit from the bed than B is not precluded by Article 3 from declining to offer inpatient care to B. Um, he goes on to say that Article 3 was not designed for circumstances where the challenge is as to a health authority's allocation of funds between competing demands. So I think that, you know, that judgment is in, it's in line with what we've already been talking about today you know health bodies are entitled to prioritize but again it comes back to that policy and the and the, the justification for for making those those really difficult decisions so again um i think we are approaching sort of the end of our time here so helen i, th I think the question that i probably need to ask you next is sort of what do we do? How, how should people proceed in the meantime? Obviously, there's possibility of more case law. There's possibility, the theoretical possibility of, of further national guidelines, uh, as you mentioned. But you know, in the meantime, everything carries on apace. So, what would your advice be for clinicians in the here and now? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's 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 um, it's key. You know, I mean, you know, guidance and everything can pause, but but clinicians and their jobs certainly can't. Um, and I, you know, I think our advice, you know, first and foremost, robust care planning. You know, all of the all of the professional bodies' guidance is very clear on this, um, and and I do think that it is exceptionally important to do so. Um, you know, in every case, that you know, it should be very clear what the proposed treatment is with clear treatment goals and what will happen, not only if the goals are reached, but but also if they're not, uh, with timescales for review. I think it's key that those difficult conversations are had um, and that there's early and clear discussion with, with patients and families as appropriate. And, you know, I say that, I say that fully appreciating how difficult those discussions are to have you know, in, in, in normal circumstances, so when they're being done remotely by the use of technology, you know, that adds a, 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 another layer of difficulty. But, I, 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 you know, from, from the legal perspective, from the ethical perspective, those those discussions, those conversations have to be had and they have to be, um, you know, they have to deal with the issues we're, we're currently facing. Um and I would say, you know, one, one of the key things to think about is ensuring that the correct people are having those difficult conversations. You know, a lot of trust that I've seen are, are, um, are setting up a core advisory team of, of, of experienced um, ITU clinicians. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting that, that that team should should have all of those difficult conversations, mm -hmm. but, you know, that, you know, I think that this should be available to advise and, and consult and to be brought in if, if, if necessary. Um, and I think if if clinicians are saying that a dispute is likely 
at some point you know that that should be picked up as early as possible and escalated as appropriate you know if if legal advice is needed um along the line and um, that that should be considered um hopefully it won't be necessary um if, if it's escalated early if it's caught early then you know chances are it may be able to be diffused before it before it becomes a, a full-blown legal issue but um but, but as i say that early pickup's essential and and as and, and as ever you know i need to stress documentation yeah. i think you know more so than ever um ration irrationales need to be documented discussions need to be documented um and and people need to be able to rely on those records in case there is scrutiny later i mean i think one question which which is really important is you know should trusts should organizations be compiling their own guidelines in the absence of a of a national framework and i think you know, it's important for trust to look at what they've got, what they've got already. I mean, I know, you know, we've, this is not our first pandemic, um, you know, parking back to 2009, many organisations produced um, guidelines then. Um, and and I know many ethics committees have, have, have considered this issue um in 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 calmer times so there may be something out there that can be that can be borrowed that can be updated that can be adapted um and and would form helpful guidelines for these situations i mean i think um if you are starting from scratch the things to be included our consideration of the professional guidance the nice guidance the bma guidance the rcp um do do hang guidelines on do rely on whatever you can um from those um clearly severity of acute illness is important presence and severity of comorbidity and and patient age but only as so far as it's clinically relevant i mean i think people need to to still to steer well clear of, of blanket exclusions we've seen that we've seen the risk of that you know from the early days of the of the nice document and um you know equally a binary age cutoff um should should be avoided i mean i you know age will undoubtedly be a factor but it must be considered in 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 context um and um you know i think i do think tempting though it is um trust need to stay clear of, of prioritization on the basis of social factors for instance um nhs employees or, or key workers yeah. as i say i'm extremely i'm you know sympathetic to that as a as a as a as a criterion but i do think that you know a decision of that level it, it needs to be it needs to be higher up than at a, at a local level yeah yeah sure helen that's uh, been incredibly interesting and i hope very very useful to all of our listeners um i think we've got to the, the end of our time um but thank you so much for that uh clearly a bit of a minefield more to be expected um but i, I, I you know i'm sure that you've been able to set out some very very useful pointers for people who are dealing with um, you know clinicians uh, uh, dealing with these incredibly difficult decisions that they're having to make on, a, on an increasingly day-to-day -day or more often basis um i should point out uh, if you do need further advice from from helen please, please do get in touch with her with her uh, as i said helen's partner in our, our manchester office uh, her telephone number is 0161 2427 uh, You can also email Helen, Helen at h.claridge.hempsons.co.uk. Um, all that really remains for me to say is thank you very much for listening. Please uh, do subscribe, like, follow, give us a review on the podcast apps. That would be very, very welcome. 
Um, to come in the not too distant, we have uh, more from our regulatory and crime team from Surgit Dub. Uh, we have uh, something coming up very shortly also from our charities team as well. So uh, much more on the very, very wider aspects of health and social care. But for now, Helen, thank you very much. And we will see you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you.